Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hi, hello, hello. Welcome back to Rossafari Zoo News, the last episode of the first season of the Rossafari podcast. Yay! Um, okay, so real quick reminder for those listening to Zoo News that after today... Zoo News will be still coming to you every week, but it's coming on Friday instead of Thursday. That's to help keep me sane, as I've mentioned previously, and, um, well, saner anyway. But I'll give you a great example of what I'm talking about. So I don't like to record these too early because they are news and I'm trying to keep them as current as possible. So I'll start recording on a Monday or Tuesday if possible and then release it late Wednesday night so that y'all have it Thursday morning. Well, this week, my Monday was spent driving three hours to go to a zoo and record an interview for y'all, and then on the way back, stopping at another zoo and catching up on some good animal stuff, and then driving back here and um, finishing up the episode that I released on Tuesday. On Tuesday, that episode came out. I did all the promotional stuff for that, but I was also out doing in-situ conservation work at 6.30 in the morning. I left that project, and I did record an interview there, to drive all the way across the state of Florida to do two more interviews at another zoo. And then I came back home and promptly crashed because sleeping is something I like to do. And I'm not good at going to bed early, so I've just been lacking sleep. Now, it is Wednesday morning, and I am starting to record this episode, which will come out tonight, but I'm going to have to stop in a little bit because I've got yet another interview lined up for y'all that I have to go and do. So this is why we are moving to Fridays to give me a little bit more room between Tuesdays and the release of Zoo News. And I'm probably the only person who actually cares about all of that, but eh, hey, it's my podcast and I'm the only one talking right now, so I win. (laughs) Anyway, thank you all for being here. Thank you all for making season one so successful. Uh, If you haven't listened to the interview from Tuesday with Jamie Delk, I highly recommend it. That's kind of what I considered my season one finale. I mentioned in that one that this is like the after credits scene in a Marvel movie. Um, And so, yeah, I appreciate y'all so much. I love y'all so much, and I can't wait to keep doing this and make things even better in season two when Zoo News will be on Friday so that my brain is not fried. Yay. So quick reminders, as always, make sure you're following along at Rossafari, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and at Rossafari Pod on TikTok. And if you see any zoo or conservation news items that you think are worthy of being on a Zoo News episode, you can get them to me in a variety of ways. You can tag me in them on Facebook and Insta and such. You can private message them to me, DMs as the kids are calling it, uh, or you could email them to me at rossafaripod at gmail.com. And let's be honest, that's enough words from me about non-news things. So here's a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll get right into the news. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, here's this week's Zoo News. One, two, three, four. Ow, oh, there's a funky monkey, tree kangaroo, or a binturong. It's Zoo News, yeah. For the second week in a row, I am starting Zoo News with my personal favorite topic, red panda cubs. So last week, I mentioned that Zoo Boise and the Potter Park Zoo both had... Baby red pandas, twins each. And now I can also announce that the Potawatomi Zoo has had two red panda cubs. The Red River Zoo has had not two, but three red panda cubs. And the Seneca Park Zoo has added two as well. That's right, y'all. We are reporting seven new red panda cubs this week. Now... Keep in mind that, you know, red panda cubs are are an iffy proposition uh, when they are first born. Uh, hopefully all seven make it, but y- you never know. Um, but it's just it's just so exciting that especially when so many animals were not able to move because of COVID protocols and stuff, to have all of these new cubs popping up, it's, it's really good news. And also, let's be real, I'm never not going to report on red panda cubs because it makes me happy. You know, I'm always excited when an international zoo and conservation story comes to me, especially zoo stories. Most most of the conservation work we hear about is international, I think. But um, the Zoo de Barcelona in Spain has released 328 Montseny brook newts back into their natural habitat. These guys are the most endangered amphibian in all of Europe, and the zoo works closely with the Catalan government and with some other partners to try hard to breed and release this species to save it from extinction. Over the past decade, around 1,500 individuals have been reintroduced into the park, and it is going very well. If you think about it, though, if around 1,500 individuals have been released in the last decade, that means that they're averaging around 150 releases a year. So this is a huge deal to have 328 released this year. It's awesome to see the way that these programs keep getting better and having higher rates of success and be able to release more animals and just ah, the whole thing is just so wonderful. So go Zoo de Barcelona. And speaking of international zoos breeding animals for re-release, the Toronto Zoo recently announced that the Native Species Conservation Breeding Program for the Endangered Black-Footed Ferret, which y'all have heard about on this podcast a lot and you know I'm really excited about, 
have welcomed 16 new black-footed ferret kits into the world. As is always the case in these situations, the ferrets will be raised to a certain age and given a health check, as well as checked genetically, when it will then be decided whether each individual will stay in the breeding program to help grow that and expand that uh, program and the genetics in it, or released into the wild to help the wild population grow. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to check out episode 81, The Weasel Warrior with Amy King of Cape May County Zoo to hear all about the black-footed ferret reintroduction program and the work that she and others are doing to save this incredible species. So now we're going to bring it back to the U.S., but stick with our favorite theme of zoos doing conservation work and releasing animals and such. The Nashville Zoo has recently announced that they have released 29 eastern hellbenders back into the wild. The hellbender, also known as the snot otter, is an incredibly endangered amphibian, and um, there are a bunch of states that are doing Head Start programs with them at their zoos and other local conservation facilities. In this case, in Tennessee, uh, people who study hellbenders had recently observed a decline in juvenile animals in the wild. They were only finding uh, large adult hellbenders, and those numbers were also going down, but not as alarmingly as the number of juveniles that were not being found. The phrase for this in the conservation world is lack of recruitment, which I find kind of hilarious. Um, and so this lack of recruitment into the population definitely indicated that something was causing a very low survival rate for eggs or larvae of uh, hellbenders. As such, the zoo decided to go out and collect eggs in the wild and then raise them for six years until they are young adults, at which point they're able to be released back into the wild. Also nice is that at that size, they can be fitted with transmitters so that they can be followed to determine the success of the project. So far, according to the transmitter, all of the hellbenders are doing quite well. And don't worry, this isn't just a one-time success story. The Nashville Zoo already has about 140 hellbenders in their conservation center that are going to be released over the next few years, and they are continuing to collect eggs for the Head Start program and are also working on further developing their captive breeding program for hellbenders. And even though this isn't done for release, the Virginia Zoo is excited to announce the historic birth of its first ever southern white rhino calf. The calf is a male and weighs around 125 pounds, is 22 inches tall, and 36 inches long. The mother, named Zena, is a first-time mom, but seems to be doing incredibly well and has been paying a lot of attention and showing good mothering instincts towards the calf. Now, the gestation period for rhinos is 16 to 18 months, so the zoo and the team have been preparing for this for quite a while and are really excited that the calf is finally here. In total, Zena's pregnancy lasted 16 months and 21 days. Ouch. And if you want to help name the calf, you can do so through July 30th by visiting virginiazoo.org slash baby rhino. Y'all know you want to name it Rossafari the Rhino. Come on, somebody with money, hop to it. Come on, I know you want to. And speaking of important births in zoos, uh, the Houston Zoo is happy to announce that two healthy ocelot cubs have been born there. 
the first in over 20 years. What makes this really special is that the parents are Genevieve and Jack. And Jack is the most genetically valuable ocelot in the entire AZA SSP. I, I, I hope they don't tell him that, though, or it might go to his head. I don't know. I also hope that Genevieve doesn't feel bad about the fact that she's less important. I, I don't know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course, this is anthropomorphism and kind of icky. But these are Jack's first cubs, so they are incredibly important to the genetic diversity of the species moving forward. The brother and sister duo both have really spicy attitudes, which is why they have been named Sriracha and Wasabi. I, I mean, that alone makes it newsworthy, right? This is just great names. But also worth mentioning, and something that I think is really cool, is that in the birth announcement, the zoo not only talked about how great the species is and how important the genetics are, but they also ended it by saying the zoo provides support for people protecting and replanting forests in Colombia to protect wild ocelot homes. Every time you visit the Houston Zoo, you are helping protect ocelots in the wild. And again, it's seeing that messaging of tying in the work done at zoos and the captive populations, to the conservation work being done by zoos and the in-situ work that is being done and supported and funded by the zoos that is so very important to me. And I think the the future messaging of zoos and, and the way that you can easily fight the anti-captivity crowd. And last but not least for Zoo News this week, uh, some interesting kind of inside baseball stuff talking about stud books. Now, those of you who listen know that stud books are the way that we track the genetics of the captive population and figure out breeding recommendations and all that stuff. Um, stud books are kept very kind of individually. Everybody has their own system. And I've gotten to see a few of the different stud books that are out there now. And they're both really impressive in what they're able to accomplish and also sometimes kind of a organizational nightmare because uh, it's hard to keep track of all that stuff. Well, good news. By 2022, institutional stud books will be moving to the ZIMS system. ZIMS, which is short for Zoological Information Management Software, is the main software system used by most zoos to track husbandry at this time. Basically, it's where keepers are able to communicate information with each other and their um, curators and, and everyone else at the zoo about the different animals. They can, you know, all reference the records of the individuals. And of course, when they go in for vet care and checkups and stuff, the vets can access the information and also put their medical information in there. It's basically the system that tracks all of your zoo animals for a lot of zoos. There are some other competing ones, and a couple of zoos have moved away from Zims and stuff. But in general, that is what Zims is. So the integration of stud books into Zims will be great not only for um, consistency with animal care professionals, but also because, again, I've seen some of these stud books, y'all, and... Um, Let's just say that a nice organized system online will go a long way to making stud bookkeepers' lives much, much easier and uh, having many less nights surrounded by thousands of pieces of paper looking kind of like a crazy conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Love to the stud bookkeepers who are listening to this right now and feeling very called out because the work y'all do is amazing. And now, conservation, conservation, news time. Oh, yeah. 
So we're going to start conservation news this week with a really fun story out of the Freeport McMorran Audubon Species Survival Center. One of the programs at the center is focused on breeding and rearing whooping cranes to be re-released into the wild. This was a program that took a huge hit with COVID last year as staff was not allowed on grounds and as such there were zero whooping cranes born, much less released. But this year things are back to it and it is going super well. Now, one of the questions that you may have as you hear this great news is how do they stop the birds from imprinting on humans? Welp, they have a cool system. It's known as costume rearing. Now, you've, you've heard of hand rearing, and, and it's the same basic idea, except that instead of going in as a person, the person who is doing the rearing goes in as a whooping crane. They put on a big, white, kind of flowy, hazmat suit-looking thing where you really can't tell that they're a human, and then one of their hands is decorated to look like an adult whooping crane. And they interact with the chicks exclusively with that hand so that the chicks think that they are learning from an actual whooping crane and not a human. The staff doing this are not just like standing there and interacting, but they are actually moving the the puppet part in such a way that it is imitating the proper behaviors of cranes so that the chicks can learn from their pseudo-parent. If you would like to see video of this, just go to YouTube and Google Audubon Whooping Cranes. Audubon is spelled A-U-D-U-B-O-N. And if you're not sure if you want to see this, uh, you do. You very much do. Trust me. Remote camera traps in Sampsi, Bhutan, were able to capture the first ever recorded photo of a tiger in the area. This tiger was found at an altitude of 2,775 meters, and with this sighting, they can now say that conservation efforts have been so successful in Bhutan that tigers can now be found throughout the entire country. This is a marked improvement as tigers had not been seen in many parts of the country even just a few years ago. Whether it's because of improved camera traps and better conservation work just finding more of this elusive population, or proof that the population is growing and there is reason to believe it is both, this is great news for tigers in the wild in Bhutan. A giant fish normally found in the tropics was recently recovered on a beach in Oregon. Man, that's just weird. The fish, which is called a giant opa fish, but which my autocorrect wants to call a giant Oprah fish, which I find more enjoyable, comes in at 3.5 feet long and weighs 100 pounds. The fish, which was found on the beach, so was obviously dead because that's how fish work, uh, was reported once found to Seaside Aquarium in Oregon, and they quickly went and recovered the body. The aquarium froze the fish and are planning to use it for educational opportunities, including allowing one school group to necropsy the fish. It's really scary to think about what could have been going on in the ocean and with climate change that would lead a huge tropical fish to end up dead on the beach in Oregon. This sounds like another episode of She's the Zoo Copper. 
today's episode, Oregon Fishing. A team of researchers from Australia, China, and the United States have combined to model the impact of climate change on the range of the Asiatic black bear in the Hindu Kush Himalayas, an area of 4.19 million square kilometers across Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, China, India, Myanmar, Nepal, and Pakistan. The news is not good. Thanks to predicted change of where forests are located based on climate change and the current mapping of how humans are destroying the habitat, it is believed that the Asiatic black bear, also known as the moon bear, will have its habitat shrink by an area roughly the size of the country of Belgium, nearly 30,000 square kilometers, by the year 2100. Along with the concerns about the shrinking habitat for the bears, it is also predicted that the elevation in which the bears must live is going to change dramatically, which can have a huge effect on a species. Right now, Asiatic black bears can be found anywhere from elevations of about 1,500 to 3,000 meters above sea level. But by 2100, it is expected that the lowest elevation you'll be able to find this bear at is 3,500 meters, which is just a, a huge change. And what that means for these bears is still unknown, but it's definitely going to put additional stressors on a species that does not need it. This is just the latest model that shows that human-accelerated climate change is an even bigger threat than we already realized. And y'all, let's be real. We already realized this is a big problem. I wish I had answers, but for now all I can do is keep reporting it and spreading the word and talking about it and hoping that we can finally, finally wake up as a species. And, you know, it's, it's just a constant problem. Y'all remember the heat wave that happened last week that uh, hit in the Pacific Northwest as well as areas along the Atlantic coast and stuff? Well, in the Pacific Northwest, scientists figure that over one billion sea creatures died because of the heat wave. One billion. And some climate scientists believe that with the current climate crisis happening, we could start seeing similar heat waves once every five to ten years. Again, a billion sea creatures died in this one. We simply have to do better. And okay, I'm going to do one more depressing story here in conservation news about just how badly we are destroying the planet. I'm sorry, I know this is a lot, but it is really, really important. Um, the Philippines is an area of the world which has incredible biodiversity, especially amongst their birds. Um, and we're still finding new stuff there. In the last decade alone, 86 new endemic bird species have been discovered. 86. That's incredible. In total, there are actually 594 bird species that can be found in the Philippines. However, a new study done in the Philippines, the most comprehensive study of the bird population there ever, estimates that there are 84 of those species that are at significantly greater risk than indicated by their current IUCN red list status. And again, it's all the usual stuff. Climate change issues, deforestation, you know illegal hunting, the wildlife trade, 
all the naughty things that are so frustrating to conservationists are causing the birds in the Philippines to have major issues that were heretofore unknown. For what it's worth, I really hope that these stories inspire you to go out and look into ways that you can help with conservation efforts that are important to you, and they don't just make you feel hopeless. Because, yeah, sometimes this kind of thing can really make you feel hopeless. But there is always reason to hope, and, you know, we've done so many amazing, positive conservation stories on this podcast. There are people out there working to change these problems, and I hope that you can remember that when we are looking at such a a tough situation and when I have to report so many tough things in one single week like this one. But I'm not going to leave conservation news on a sad note. I saved this story till the end because it's kind of cool and kind of fun. So there is a mouse that lives in Australia, or I should say lived in Australia, because more than a century ago, it was presumed extinct. However, it turns out that there is a population of this mouse that exists and uh, was just thought to be a different species. The Gould's mouse in Australia was declared extinct over a century ago, while the Shark Bay mouse in Shark Bay, Western Australia, has been doing just fine. Well, in the course of doing genetic testing on the current rodent populations of Australia and also using samples from museums of the extinct rodents of the past, scientists have discovered that the Gould's mouse and the Shark Bay mouse are genetically identical. That's right, y'all. They're the same species. And thus, the Gould's mouse is no longer extinct. Yay, not extinct animals. In other And for other news this week, we start off with an embarrassed raccoon. But, you know, not really. We'll get there. Anyway, a photo of a raccoon being rescued after breaking into a Georgia home is going viral because it is the picture of a fireman carrying the raccoon out of the house, and the raccoon is covering its eyes and looking super embarrassed at the whole ordeal. Now, Of course, this went viral and everyone thinks it's adorable that the raccoon was embarrassed. But what we know from studying animal behavior is that the raccoon was not actually embarrassed. It was probably terrified and uh, raccoons will cover their eyes when they are scared. Now, to be clear, that's not saying that the fireman was doing anything wrong. The raccoon broke into a home. They were able to pick it up, carry it outside and release it back into the wild where it was fine. Sometimes these things happen. Very small part of animal human conflict and and everyone was fine in the end. But it's also interesting to see how things can go viral for anthropomorphic reasons, such as saying that it's an embarrassed raccoon when clearly it is a terrified raccoon. Um, it's still a really cute picture. It's worth a Google if you want to see it. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's also a really good reminder that sometimes we see behaviors in animals and think that we are seeing them being little humans. And it turns out they're actually not that. They are non-human animals and they react to things differently than we do. Still cute picture though. And finally this week, a wild walrus living in St. Mary's Harbor in Wales has been causing a ton of damage. He tries to climb up on boats and interact with humans and just do all kinds of naughty things that wild walruses are not supposed to do. The walrus, known as Wally, which is adorable, has now had his own special safe space built for him. 
a pontoon where he can relax undisturbed and hopefully cause less trouble has been built in St. Mary's Harbor specifically for Wally. That's right, y'all. Rather than saying that since Wally was causing trouble, they would have to euthanize him or put him into a captive situation, the British Divers Marine Life Rescue, along with the Harbor Authority in the Isles of Sicily, got together to look at the problem. And they decided that if they could build a pontoon just for Wally, he might be willing to hang out there rather than on boats filled with humans. And it has mostly worked. Interestingly enough, though, Wally has seemed to take a liking to not only his pontoon, but the Star of Life ambulance boat. And so it has been decided that as long as there is not an emergency happening, Wally is allowed to climb on board on the Star of Life and then spend the rest of the time on a pontoon. By doing this, Wally has caused a lot less damage, interacted with many many fewer humans than he had been, and in general is just having a much higher quality of life. The craziest part about this is that Wally has actually appeared to learn that if there is an emergency situation when he's on the Star of Life rescue boat, that he needs to get off. When they turn on their sirens and start doing all the things, if he is resting there, he immediately jumps back in the water every time, frequently going to his pontoon that was built for him. What an awesome, awesome, and very thoughtful, lovely little walrus Wally is. And now, your animal holidays for the week. Reminder that it is Wild About Wildlife Month, National Bison Month, and Plastic Free July. Also, we're right in the middle of National Zookeeper Week, and if you're following along on Instagram at Ross Safari, you're seeing me put up lots of stories, giving lots of love to lots of my favorite zookeepers that have been on the podcast. Um, just such amazing people and the inspiration for all of this. Oh, it's also the middle of Coral Reef Awareness Week, which is pretty exciting because I'm actually off to record an interview about corals at Moat Marine Lab today, which I cannot wait to share with you all. And as far as individual animal days, well, according to the Peppermint Narwhal Animal Calendar, um, I don't have much to tell you, friends, uh... There's actually nothing listed for this entire week, although I will point out that on Friday, July 23rd, we are celebrating the one-year anniversary of the Rasafari podcast. Yay! All right, and that wraps it up for the week. I would like to say a heartfelt thank you to Kim Cooley, Dr. Natalie Taco, Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross, Danny Poirier-Larson, and Martin at Martin's Exotics for sharing some stories with me this week. Remember, you can also share them with me and then get your name set on here by tagging me in things or DMing them to me or emailing me at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Okay, here come the Steiderk Yeswen. The Ross Safari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Ross Safari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Ross Safari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. 
Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.